Man, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. All right, church. Well, if you have a Bible, I hope you do, go ahead and find your way back to that very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Whereas we continue through our journey of this very first book, we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 17 this morning, which will be on page 11 if you're using one of those black ESV pew Bibles around the room. Now before I read our text for us today, as you can see by really just the title of today's sermon, The Covenant Part 2, is we are once again looking at a narrative that deals with covenants, right? Deals with these, these special covenants which God has with his people. And in particular, we're going to be looking at the covenant with Abram, or it's also known as the Abrahamic covenant in theology. But let me remind us that once again, we are not looking at this covenant for the first time. We're actually not looking at covenants in general for the first time. Since the very beginning of the Bible, we've been seeing that God has been entering into these special relationships with different individuals. And these, these relationships are often defined by these covenants, these promises in which God is making with certain individuals who then actually represent humanity. And when it comes to Abram, both in chapter 12 and chapter 15, we have seen the covenant that was made with him. That special relationship with Abram and his offspring Promises to give Abram a nation, promises to make his name great, promises that through his family line would come somebody that would bless the entire world. We've seen this through our study so far. And as we have noted, this Abrahamic covenant plays a significant role then for Christians today, for us. Right? If you consider yourself a Christian, right? if you've believed in the gospel, the Abrahamic covenant has has deep roots. It, it, it's part of your family, in, in a way. Because what, what the Abrahamic covenant reflects is really what God has been doing since the very beginning of the Bible, right? Providing this road of redemption, this pathway for fallen humanity, fallen people like you and I, to be made right with God again. It's this road of redemption that we keep seeing, provide clarity, keep seeing, okay, how is this going to happen? How could people who rebel against God, how can people who fall short of the glory of God be made right with God? Well, that road of redemption started back in Genesis 3, didn't it? With the Proto-Evangelion, that first gospel proclamation, in which God promised that he was going to send somebody Someone to make things right, to enter into a broken world, to crush the head of the serpent and to redeem that was broken. And through the story of Genesis, we've seen that promise be clarified and expanded. And once again, we're going to see that today because it's an important chapter in the Bible for us to consider slowly. And we're going to look at the, a lot of text today. But we are going to walk through, slowly through this wonderful chapter. This chapter that reminds us of the way of redemption. The signs in which God has given his people to remember what he has done and what he will do. Not because we've earned it, not because we deserve it, but because God is almighty 
That's how he describes himself today. Almighty. And we're thankful that we have a God who is such. But let me go ahead and stop there, as I normally do, before I actually read the text for us, simply because I want to pray for you, and I want you to pray for me. And then we'll read Genesis 17. But let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Well, Father, as we, before we actually read your text, read the words in which you have inspired through your spirit, God, I ask that, that you would just allow us to rightly understand who you are through your word. That you would just be able to illuminate the text, not only so that we can see it for what it is, but we'd also be able to trust it, to submit to it, to have it be authority in our lives. Because the words of you are good and right. And they reveal all of what we need to know about you. So God, I pray for each person in this room today that you would just grant them that ability. Father, I also ask that you would be with the kiddos next door and those teachers that are serving them. As they look um, at at this text of Genesis 17 themselves. That even the littlest hearts that occupy this building this morning, that, that they would be able to walk out of here loving you more than when they first walked in. And God, we pray that for all of us. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 17. I'm going to go ahead and just read through the whole chapter, and then we will go back through and look at a few aspects of it. But please just follow along in your Bible as I read this for us. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your, bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant." Verse 15, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. 
I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety-nine years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you should call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yeah, thanks be to God indeed. Just for giving us a way to rightly know him, rightly worship him, respond to him. Now, what I would like to do this morning as we consider the wonderful truths in which we just read, is to consider the narrative as a whole. Right? We just walked through a, quite a few verses. And instead of going through each individual verse, I want to focus in our attention of the theme of Genesis chapter 17. The theme of covenant and sign. A theme that is not only represented in Genesis 17, but also you'll see throughout the rest of Scripture. So here's how we're going to look at it. I want to start by looking at the expansion of the Abrahamic covenant. What do we learn here that we have not learned from Genesis 12 or Genesis 15? How is God expanding his covenant with Abraham? Number two is I want to look at that physical sign that was given to Abraham and the sons. And number three, as we have been doing through our study in Genesis... See, how does this chapter, how does Genesis 17 actually point us forward for us today? Why would Christians living in the year 2022 actually care about this? What does this have to do with us? That is what we will consider as well. And fair warning, I will be using and saying the term circumcision a lot today. I already have. I will continue because it's in our text. It's in the Bible So that's going to be a lot of fun. But also know, I am not going to go into great detail of explaining what circumcision is. Okay? If you do not know, go ahead, after after the service, ask your neighbor on what circumcision is. Okay? They will be happy to explain it to, to you. I'm sure of it. But let's go ahead and dive into this text, because I think there's a lot for us to learn about God, a lot for us to learn about how this points forward to Christ himself. But let's look at the text at hand. Go back to verse 1. We are told that it's been 13 years 
since Genesis 16, chapter 16. It's been 13 years after Ishmael has been born. But notice that Sarai and Abram still do not have a son. Right? They are still waiting for God to fulfill his promises. So they've been waiting 13 more years. 13 more years of praying. 13 more years of wondering, did we misunderstand God again? Is there something wrong with me? And if you jump down to verse 17, I think we actually get a little bit of a glimpse into where Abram is actually at, where his heart is at. Because I believe that Abraham is losing hope in some ways. Once again, he's not sure if he can trust God in his timing. And so when he hears about what God is doing, he presents, well, I have Ishmael. I throw him before you, Lord. And he goes, no, no, no. Remember, I have promised you and Sarah a son. So I think that's where Abraham is at amidst this. But what does God do? What have we learned about God in the very first verse here in Genesis chapter 17? What does God do? He comes. He shows up. He's not absent, right, from the trials or the perplexities of waiting and trusting God. And he comes and he speaks to Abraham, or Abram here still. And he reminds him that he is God. And even gives himself this title that we haven't even seen in Scripture before. He says, I am God Almighty. In Hebrew, it's El Shaddai. The first time we're seeing this in Scripture, God is wanting to remind Abram here that he is sovereign. Once again, that he is in control, that he knows what he's doing, and that he can be trusted. And so he explains the best part anyone could ever do when you're doubting is think about who is God? Who is he? He's sovereign. And like those chosen before him, what does he call Abram to do? He calls him to walk with him, to trust him, to be in relationship with him. He says, walk with me, walk before me, trust me, and be blameless. Blameless here, it's the Hebrew word tamim. And don't think sinlessness, as sometimes it's used elsewhere in scripture. In here, where we're seeing blameless used, it, I think a better English word is wholeness or completeness. It's God is saying, Abram, walk with me. Trust me, and you will be made whole. I will not fall, fall short of what I have promised you. You can trust me. So he says, walk with me. And God reminds Abram of the covenant, doesn't he? Which we all need to be reminded of who God is and what he's promised over and over again. That's why we do church every single week. We need to be reminded of the promises of God. But here for Abram, that, that Abrahamic covenant is the promise of land, right? A promise of an heir, a promise of blessing. But we're also seeing that expansion of it, more clarity. And he starts by expanding this covenant by actually changing the name of Abram. If you look down at verse 5, it says, No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Right? And if you look at those little subscripts of what those names mean in your Bible, you will see that it's going from exalted father to a father of multitude. You see, God wanted to be very clear to Abraham that he was not finished with him. 
that his promises had not been derailed. And so he promised him that not only would he be a father of a great nation, but that through his family the whole world would be blessed. And that was going to be known. And as names were important in that, in that day, he says, Abraham, I want people to call you Abraham. So every time someone says your name, you're reminded of these greater promises that I have. Ways that you're going to have to trust me even when you don't realize how I'm going to accomplish it. He wanted Abraham to know that God would do things far greater than he or his family could ever imagine. Remember, they still didn't have this land. There was still no son. Right? All these promises are still seemingly non-existent. But yet God continues to say, no, 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 I'm not done. In fact, let me show you even more of what I'm going to do. But it wasn't just Abram's name changed, was it? Also, Sarai. Her name is changed to Sarah, which both mean princess. And I'll explain why I think there isn't you know, a major change there in a moment. But what God was doing was expanding that Sarah, reminding Sarah, not a surrogate, right? Not a mistress, not a servant. She herself would bear a son, her own son, that her womb would not be barren forever. And in verse 19, we see this very clearly, don't we? We see God say, Sarah, you will bear a son. In fact, I'll even tell you his name right now. His name shall be called Isaac. Isaac. A few weeks back, we looked at the theme of continued grace. That even when we continue to fail, even when we continue to not trust in God's timing, he continues to give grace. And I think we see that again here. Despite Abram and Sarah's just roller coaster of trust, God continues to say, trust me. I don't start things and not finish them. Trust me. Now, what about Ishmael, right? We learned about him last week. We learned that he was in the eyes of God and even to Hagar and Abraham, that he was a legitimate child. Well, we see that Ishmael was then also given promise and provision that God was not going to forget about this child that was born, but reminds Abraham that the covenant that was promised as a son of Abraham and Sarah would come through him. Ishmael is going to be okay, but my promise to you and Sarah is still to come. And we're going to learn about Isaac in the weeks to come. Genesis 18 has a ton, and then some of the early chapters of 20s. But I want to go back to that name change for Sarah. Like, why would you change the name from princess to princess? God, are, are you actually changing anything then? Well, I think the first princess, why her parents named her Sarai, is likely because she actually came from a royal lineage. That she actually had some royalty in her family line. But yet, God is changing her name from princess to princess to say, I no longer want you to think about your past royal line. I want you to focus on the royal line that's going to to come from you. And so we see this. 
that God wanted her to focus on the royal lineage that would come, not that has come. One that would produce not just a king, but the king of kings. And so we see this promise of kings coming from them. And although we don't have time to trace this out in full, I do want to give you a little snapshot into some biblical theology of where this language or where this theme of kingship continues to be developed. Because the Bible continues to highlight this aspect throughout the rest of the Old Testament. At the end of Genesis, Genesis 49, we're not going to turn there, but at the end of Genesis 49, we see these, these blessings given, given to the sons. And one of the sons is the son Judah, right? That came, it's the family line of Abraham and Sarah. And we see a blessing to Judah. Specifically, it says, through your family line, Judah, is where the scepter will reign, where kings will happen. Well, where did that line of Judah go forward? It produced, yeah, we'll get to Jesus. But there's even some even before. From Judah came David. King David was from the line of Judah. And when David had his throne, we even see God speak to David and give him what's known as the Davidic covenant, where God says, David, one of your sons will not just be a king, but will be the king whose reign will never end. And then as we get to the opening of the Gospels, when we get to when Jesus is born, we see the writers attribute to Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. See, God's promises here, we get the privilege of kind of being able to fast forward throughout history. But I want us to look back and go, God made promises. Promises were made. Promises have always been kept. And so God reminds, going back to Abraham, God reminds Abraham about this covenant that he was going to have with God. This covenant that would not only produce a land, a blessing, but also one that was going to come to bless the entire world. So we see the expansion of the covenant. But moving on to point number two, we also see a sign given to Abraham to reflect this covenant. Because remember, covenants involved more than just one person. Right? It was God establishing his covenant with another, this special relationship. And last time we looked at Genesis 15, we saw that God instituted this covenant ceremony, didn't he? That God himself passed through the cut up animals, animals saying that I will, I will be good on my promises, let this happen to me. But he says, I am doing this. I am the one moving and working. I am the one who's going to give you a child. I am the one who's going to give you the land. I am the one who keeps my promises. But even though God initiates the covenant, God is the one who brings it to order, that does not mean that the other party doesn't have a way to signal or a sign in which they're saying, yeah, this is a covenant. This is something that I'm a part of as well. And so in verse 9, if you look at your Bibles, God said to Abraham, as for you, right? God's been speaking a lot about what he will do, but he, here he says, but as for you, Abraham, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, 
after you throughout their generations. Now, how do they do that? How do they keep the covenant? How do they reflect that they are trusting in the promises of God? Well, verse 10 says, here's a sign. Here's a sign in which I'm giving you, and that's a sign of circumcision. And so God tells Abram, Abraham that a sign of you recognizing this relationship that God has established between ourselves as a sign and a seal that I am going to make good on my promises. This is what I want you to do, Abraham, is I want you and every male among you to be circumcised or to have your foreskin cut off. But notice, who was this for? Was this just for the physical line of Abraham? Look at verses 12 and 13. We see that it was for all people. All people who are going to believe and trust in the promises of God. It wasn't just for maybe the physical descendants of Abraham. He's saying, hey, everybody, everyone who's a part of this, everyone who's trusting in the promises that I have for you and for the nation, I want you to partake in the sign all the males. And they did so. And then God even gave the, the future uh, kind of charge of this. It says, and then every male that's born from here on out on the eighth day, I want you to circumcise as well. To reflect you and your family saying, we are part of this. We are trusting in what God has said and what God will do. And if you jump down to verses 23 and verses 20. Through 27. What does Abraham do, church? It says he does everything that which God has said, which we have to reflect on. Of all the times when Abraham hasn't done that, all the times where he's like, you know what, I don't think you have, you know, maybe the right details figured out, Lord, I'm going to take it in myself. Here he goes, okay, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to submit to you. And he does through with circumcision of all things. Which would have, he would have known what this is. This was around near ancient culture. It's not as if he was unaware of what circumcision was. But notice, he doesn't grumble, right? He doesn't go, is there any other way? Right? Which I probably would have, to be honest. I would be like, Noah got a rainbow. Can I get something along those lines? But here, it's something costly. It's something very intentional. And why? Why was it this way? Well, I think it, it, it indicates one of, of the cost of a covenant that is to come. But two, it also speaks to the individual reality and stipulations which the Abrahamic covenant has. Because look at back at verse 14, if you will. When God gives a warning, he says, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So although the promises were fixed to the nation, were fixed, right, to to Abraham and his offspring, every male and the family that's attached to it, they had to individually respond with this sign of the covenant. And so like a play on words in some ways, God says, be cut or be cut off. Simply putting in the reality that the promises of God come to individuals too. 
that individuals must respond to the promises of God. You can't bank on what your dad did. You can't bank on what your granddad did. Every single person individually has to answer what they're going to do with who God is and what he has said. And unfortunately, if we had time to keep reading through our Bibles, we will see that there does come times in Israel's history where they didn't do this. Not only did they not circumcise at times, but I think more importantly is that their circumcision did not reflect them actually believing the promises of God. And they turned their back on God. And individually they were cut off. But then why do we have this here, though? Right? Why are we looking at these covenant signs? What does this have to do with God's people? Because at the end of the day, what is covenant language speaking about? What is it pointing us to? Well, it's pointing us to those, those great plans of God. Right? Those great plans of promise given to them. But we think about all the way back to Genesis 3. What are these plans? What is even the Abrahamic covenant reflective of? It's reflective of, of God doing something that would bring people back to a place, back to a land where sin is no longer present, where God rules and reigns in relationship to his people, and God himself is even present, walking amongst the people. Really, a thought of Eden, of how God initially created us to live with him. And so the covenant sign here is, is a signpost saying, maybe there is a greater Eden to come. Maybe this is pointing us forward. Maybe this is reminding us that God is not finished. And that's exactly what it does. And here's point number three of how the Abrahamic covenant points forward then to the new covenant. To the new covenant. Because the book of Hebrews is a wonderful reflection about the Old Testament. If you, never, if, you read, if you really want to understand the Old Testament according to the New, read the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews is constantly going back to the Old Testament and explaining why God did certain things in the past. And this is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, if it was possible for merely the Abrahamic covenant to accomplish all of what God was going to do, thinking about returning people to another Eden-like place, then we would have no need for a new covenant. We would have no need for anything better to come. But what we see is the Abrahamic covenant was playing the role of redemption, that, that road leading to the new covenant by bringing forth who? Jesus. We talked about this. How the Abrahamic covenant was, in a very literal way, pregnant with the new covenant. And so the Abrahamic covenant was pointing us forward to a reality that was to come. A reality of that child, one that would bless the whole world. The one that, one that we now recognize and realize was fulfilled in the coming of Christ. In regards to that heir, that blessing. And, but what is the new covenant, right? What does that language actually mean? Well, the new covenant is simply just a way to 
to talk about all of what God promised to do amongst sinners. And that is to forgive sins, to provide an atonement for sins, to provide a way for people to live with God's law written on their hearts. That's what the new covenant is. It's something that Jesus was able to accomplish and bring in all of our ability to have our sins forgiven, for us to be made right with God, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the new covenant. But the new covenant is not just a, a one that reflects that of spirit, or that God was going to come in spirit, but really back to Eden, that God was going to be there amongst his people. God with us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? Emmanuel. That God is with us again. But like the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant is also accompanied by different signs. Signs in which God's people can reflect and look back. Signs that what Jesus did on the cross counted for them. Signs that they believed that Jesus was the full and final sacrifice. That Jesus was and is the only road to salvation. That Jesus was and is. Right? The great high priest who stands in the gap between sinners and a holy God. But what is the sign? What is the sign of then this new covenant? Well, the early church really struggled to think about this in some ways. Right? Because right, they're, they're, they're seeing the fulfillment, right? this, this, this Abrahamic covenant, this, this promised child come into the earth to accomplish what he set out to accomplish, to be a blessing to the whole world. And now Christians, you know, particularly those who maybe come from the family line of Abraham, are saying, okay, do we still need to be circumcised? Is this still part of the sign of the new covenant? Like it was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And interesting, through the book of Acts, you see this debate going on. Does this still matter? Does this still play a part in our history? Well, if you read Acts 15, which we're not going to do today, but Acts 15 is where the early church actually had a council to talk about this very issue. Saying, how does circumcision play into the new covenant? Do, do people coming to faith in Christ, do they need to be circumcised in order to identify that they have believed and trusted in the promises of God? And what was the result of that counsel in Acts 15? Is they said, no. No, that physical circumcision played a role in the history of Israel, but it is no longer binding on Christians then and today. However, though, we do hear about circumcision in the New Testament. But like all of the, the New Covenant, it all comes from God. It all starts from Him and is accomplished through Him. The New Covenant is a work of God. And so instead of physical circumcision that identifies the people of God, what is it? Spiritual circumcision. The circumcision of the heart that you have been changed, that what is of old has been cut out and something new has been put in its place. And let me show you this. This is from the book of Colossians. And Paul's speaking to these first century Christians. And he says this, of this reality. He says, in him also you were circumcised 
with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So what is Paul saying there, church? He's saying, even in the new covenant, there is still a sign, a sign that God is at work, a sign that reflects this this trust in the promises and the work of God. But he connects it to not a physical circumcision, but a spiritual one, one done by God himself. And how does God do that? How does God without hands, perform this spiritual circumcision. Well, this is what the New Testament encourages churches to be a part of. He tells the churches to preach the gospel, to tell people about what Christ has done on their behalf. He tells them to preach that Jesus lived a sinless life, but yet died a sinner's death in the place of people like me. And yet through that exaltation of Jesus, through us proclaiming that, what does God do with that message or good news? Is he takes it and he actually changes people by it. He takes out a heart of stone that wanted to live life in rebellion against God, but then gives them a heart that says, God, I want to turn from my sin and I want to trust in you. I want to repent for the way that I have rebelled against you and I want to throw myself knowing that my only hope in this world is through you and you alone. It's what's called regeneration. It's a fancy word. Or being born again, John 3. And out of that regeneration then comes the act of baptism. Right? The act of baptism being plunged underwater, raised out of it. It's, it's to reflect a spiritual circumcision. It's just reflecting of what God has done. So baptism implies that a circumcision has taken place, a spiritual one, one that cannot be taken away, and one that is forever and final. And that's why we encourage individuals to get baptized, individual believers to get in the water and talk about what God has done, not for their family or not for you know, their mom or their dad, but what God has done in them. That God has taken out a heart of stone and given them a heart of repentance. A heart that wants to trust in the work of Christ. It's an outward profession of that inward reality. That inward seal. Because although baptism is the sign, is a sign of the new covenant, an outward sign, what's the seal according to the New Testament? The seal is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that cannot be taken away, church. I'm almost done. But I want us to remember that work of God. That's why baptism is important. That's why I encourage you, if you've not been baptized as a believer, to consider being baptized. For you to confess what God has already done. And if you have, if you have questions about that, I'm happy to talk to you about that. Right? There's, there's not pressure. I understand that there may, you may have questions. A lot of people have questions about how cold the water is. I'm happy to answer those things. But I want baptism to be reflective of what we see in the New Testament. It's just you getting to joyously celebrate and identify in your trust and faith in the promises of God. But to close our time, 
if we were to reflect back on Genesis 17, I think we begin to see how that road of redemption was being put together. That road of redemption that would weave itself through the Old Testament, through the cross, into the church today. That's what we are celebrating. That's what we are remembering. And if we could go back to that very first verse of Genesis chapter 17, what I pray for us today is that we would be able to walk out of here going, our God is El Shaddai. He is mighty. He is the Almighty. And he has proven that on the cross. He has proven that with what he has done with sinners like you and I. And all we're going to do is respond to what God has done over and over again. Because why not? Why not? Think about this room. Think about all of us, all of our different stories, all of the different ways that we shouldn't be here. But we are here because of El Shaddai. God Almighty has come. And so we're going to respond. And the only way that I know how to respond, and that's in worship, to give glory to where glory is due. But let's pray first and then we'll respond. Father, as we end our time in your word, I'm so thankful that you are a God who who not only makes covenants, but even gives us covenant signs, ways that we can respond to you, ways that we can respond to your good work, ways that we can respond to your gospel. Father, I pray that we would do that. Father, I pray that if there's someone who has never responded, has never considered what you have done, Jesus, on the cross, that they would see it for what it is. And that they be that you'd grant them that gift of repentance to be able to turn from their sin and turn to Christ as Savior, as Lord, as King, as the Almighty. And we trust that good work that can only come from you. We trust your timing. We trust your purposes. And we continue to just hold fast to what is still to come. And we pray in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, church. Well, if you're able to, why don't you go ahead and stand. And let's respond in song one more time. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.